We're going to go to Genesis chapter 13 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, please go there now. We're going to be reading a lot of Scripture this morning, but we're not going to read all of Genesis 13 and 14 this morning. I'm going to pray that God would speak to us now, and we're going to come before Him in His Word. Yeah? All right, let's pray. God, we thank You that You are a God who speaks. And so God, now please still our hearts the distractions that we've brought in this morning. God, would you focus our attention on you? God, we confess that every single day our faith is tested and you call us to be faithful. You call us to be obedient. And so God, we pray through this story of Abraham this morning, would you help us with the eyes of faith to see what it looks like to be a people who would walk by faith and not by sight. So God, speak to us now. We're ready to hear you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all those who agreed said, Amen. You know, this week I was emailing with uh, Graham and Sarah Edwards, who are church planters with Acts 29 in a city called Trieste in Italy. And uh, Sarah had sent out a prayer request. She was going for her driver's license so she can drop the kids at preschool and whatnot. And apparently that is a massive ordeal for a foreigner in Italy. It's really hard work. And so she's gone a number of times and she's failed. And she asked that people would pray for her that she would be able to pass her exam and test to get her driver's license. And she replied back last week and she said, I failed again. And it was a bit of a sad news for, for them as a family But here's the thing that happened in that moment. Her continual failure is communicating something to all of their friends that they've met in Italy. And they keep saying to her, look, Sarah, we will go and buy you an illegal license in Naples. Forget the system. This is how it works in Italy. You just bribe and go around and make things happen. Why won't won't you just cheat the system and go get a license? And she is demonstrating her trust in God, her faith. And in that moment, she is communicating to all of these people around her that they are in Italy for reasons that are not human. That they're in Italy doing something that is so countercultural to the way that their culture works and how other foreigners work when they move there. That there is something phenomenally different about this radical life that demands an explanation. That, friends, is faith. And this morning we will see Abraham who is tempted. His faith is tested again. But this week we see him walk by faith and shine. And so my aim is really this morning is 2 Corinthians 5, 7. That all of us would walk by faith and not by sight. That we would walk by faith and not by sight. Now walking by sight means that you see Jesus. That's what he means there in 2 Corinthians 5, that you realize the culmination of the kingdom, that you are there. You see it with your own eyes. But because we don't see Jesus crowned, because we don't see him face to face, because the kingdom still lies ahead, now we walk by faith. And so my hope this morning is that we will see in this story that Abraham walks by faith. Faith And by faith, I mean this, that we would trust the promises of God more than we trust our own intellect. 
that we would trust the Word of God more than we trust our intuition, that we would trust the Spirit of God more than we trust our own feelings. That's what faith looks like, that you would believe God. And I don't mean just believe intellectually. I mean believe actively with your choices and your words and your actions, that you would walk by faith. This morning, we're going to see in this text a contrast between Abraham's faith and Lot's lack of faith. Abraham makes his decisions by faith and Lot makes his decisions by sight. But Abraham's faith will be tested here again. If you cast your minds back to last week, let's pick up the story. Abraham had been promised by God that he would have land, that he would be blessed, that he would be made famous that there would be many people from him, that his wife Sarah would have a child, that the nations would be blessed through his offspring, through him. Phenomenal promises. And then you get to this testing moment where his faith is tested due to famine. There is the test of famine and Abraham takes his family off to Egypt and things go bad. This week... The opposite test happens. It's not a test of famine. It's a test of fortune that Abraham and Lot, their families are blessed. Their herds are many. Their tents are many. And there is a test that comes. And it's a test of fortune, of abundance. You know, sometimes it's easier to, you know, grit and and walk through a season of testing when it's hard. When it's a test of famine, we, we, we're alert, we're switched on. We, we know that we're dependent on God in that moment. But when there's a test of abundance and fortune, sometimes we're just not aware that this is a test. We think it's a blessing and we start walking by sight instead of by faith. Last week, Abraham failed as he took his family out of the promised land, away from God's promises, dependent on Egypt. This week, we will see Abraham shine as he walks by faith. Last week he failed. And as we turn the pages between Genesis 12 and Genesis 13, we see Abraham in the midst of his failure. What will he do? Will he wander the desert in self-pity? What will he do? Or he returns to the Lord. I wonder how you go when you respond to failure. There's some sin in your life. You've let God down. You've let yourself down. You've let others down. You feel guilty about what you've done and you you spend a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month beating yourself up over that sin so that you could somehow atone for it by feeling bad over it. And then you return to the Lord when you feel good. All right, now God will accept me because I've dealt with this mess. That's not a very gospel-centered approach to dealing with our sin. We see Abraham simply returns to the Lord. This is what it says in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and gold, and he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, 
to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Yes, this is the fuel of Abram's faithfulness. This will be what helps him walk through the test of abundance and walk by faith instead of by sight. He returns. He returns to the Lord. He returns to the place where he'd set up the altar and encountered God. He returns. This is worth saying for those of you here this morning who are feeling the weight of guilt, the weight of shame. For those of you who are feeling tired, return. For those of you who are feeling weighed down, return. For those of you who are wrestling even now in your hearts, stop. Stop trying to return to the Lord on your own strength and just come like Abraham and return. Because the steadfast love of the Lord endures. There is new mercy to meet you. There is grace. Return. Abram returns. And it's on this foundation of pursuing God in the midst of his failure it's on this foundation of coming back to God, of worship of God, that Abram's faith will shine, that he will walk by faith. And so let's have a look at the first test of abundance. The first test of abundance is the test of the choice that he faces between family and fortune. Come with me to Genesis chapter 13, verse 5. Genesis 13, verse 5. And Lot who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so much, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we are brothers, we are family. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus he separated from each, thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled amongst the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners. Against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for the, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. 
that traveling throughout the land is something that kings would do as they conquered an area. They would travel around the land and kind of claim it out, stake it out for their own. And God says, this land is yours. Wonder, journey, I've given it to you. But you dial back a sec, those choices there that Abraham made. Abraham has the, the right to choose the first lot of the land. He is the senior partner in the family. He is the elder of the tribe. He has the right to choose, and yet he treats Lot like an equal. He says, come, nephew, let's stop this quarreling. You choose. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. This is countercultural generosity on Abram's behalf, on his behalf. No one else did that. Everyone else sat on their rights to be the one who would choose the best of the land. Abraham, in countercultural generosity, says, Lot, you choose. He is trusting in God in this moment. Previously, Abram would have manipulated and lied and acted out of self-interest and deceived. And it seems as though there are some lessons that he has learned as he's come out of Egypt. That in Egypt, he was willing to sacrifice his wife as he lied and said, she is my sister, and Pharaoh took her to be her, his future wife. Here, Abram is not prepared to compromise his family. He pursues peace. At the risk of his own flocks and his fortune, he chooses to put family first. Here, Abraham is putting people over performance. People over performance. This is an excellent model of business. Because any business model that chooses to sacrifice people in order to gain financially is dishonest gain, it's unrighteous gain, and God does not approve of it. Abraham's actions here, if you flick through the pages of the Old Testament time and time again, people brag on Abraham for this act of countercultural generosity. He puts family first. He seeks peace instead of his own fortune and flocks. Any wealth that comes at the cost of family is unrighteous wealth. And yet so many sacrifice their family on the altar of career, on the altar of progression, on the altar of pursuing their dreams. And so I, I say to those of you who work long hours. I say to myself, what are we doing to ensure that we are not neglecting family so that we can pursue a dream or a career or financial stability? That's a, that's a tough challenge. That's a test of faith for those of us who live in crazy, corporate, money-hungry Sydney in 2017. I don't think that's impossible to do. Working dads, working mums, to juggle those two things, to do it well, that's another sermon for another day. But any wealth that comes at the cost of family, we have failed the test of faith at that point. But Lot chooses. Lot chooses. And what guides his choices as he does that? He lifts his eyes and he looks around the land. And what does he see? 
He sees green pastures. He sees well-watered land in the Jordan Valley, and he chooses that. He saw that the land was good. But even in that choice, you see there's some hints there in the narrative that it's not good. It says that the land is like the garden. That's the Garden of Eden. It says that the land is like Egypt, and we've been there. We've seen the deception of the serpent in the garden. There is danger there. We've seen the dangers in Egypt. I mean, Egypt, time and time again, you look at, at the figure of Egypt in the Scriptures, and every time it's a return to slavery, it's a running from God. But Lot sees with his eyes good land, good soil, good pasture. And so he moves. He chooses by, by sight and not by faith. Now, it's significant, this move. Because what Lot does here is he chooses to move away from a number of things. The place where Lot decides to go, he, he's creeping very close to Sodom, is on either the very edge of the border or if not out of the promised land altogether. So Lot is making a choice to move away from God's land of promise. Additionally, Lot is choosing to move away from God's agent of blessing, Abram, and his family. He is the one whom God has said, I will bless all the families of the earth through you. And Lot is choosing to move away from that. This is a significant choice. Additionally, he moves towards Sodom. And we get two little hints there that this is not a good choice. First, the narrator points us forward. He says, this was before Sodom had been destroyed. And secondly, he says, the people of Sodom were very wicked. So Lot moves towards temptation without any hesitation because he is guided by his sight, by what he sees. Fertile soil for my empire, for my flocks. Abram's choice, on the other hand, is informed by faith. It is informed by the promises of God. God has promised him nation and land and blessing and protection and fame. And his choice is governed by those promises, despite what might be evident in front of his eyes. He chooses by faith to cling to those promises. And those promises get reaffirmed here, even pimped out, dare I say. Have a look at verse 14. This is what God says. He, he takes the promises that he made in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and he expands them and gives them steroids. This is what he says in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward in every direction. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if you can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. The point is that's impossible. Your offspring, the nation that will come from you, will be so vast. You see, in the end, Abraham too looks with his eyes. But he looks through the lens of faith. And what he sees is vastly different to the land that Lot has chosen. It may not be as good for his flocks. But he trusts that God has promised that this land is the land that he will inherit. 
that the Lord will bless him in this land. And so he is guided by faith in the promises of God. Here, Abram sits comfortably in the gap between reality and promise. He sits comfortably because his eyes tell him something that the promises of God are different. And he rests in that gap with this sense of ease that he's willing to let Lot choose and know that God will fulfill his promise that he will provide. So that's the first test, the test of the choice between family and fortune. And he shines. He walks by faith. But the second test is a test of cheap gain. Let me give you a little bit of a context to what's happening here in chapter 14. In chapter 14, we see the five southern kingdoms of which Sodom and Gomorrah are a part of and their Mesopotamian overlords who for 12 years have suppressed the people of the south, taxing them. And these kings of the south rally together and start a rebellion against their overlords. And these armies combine and come down and they whoop butt. Sodom and everyone else is destroyed. And with them, Lot and his family, because he's so close to Sodom, get caught up. And his family, his tents, his herds and everything are taken off as the bounty and loot of the victory of war. And they journey north. But one person from Lot's household escapes and he runs to Abram. He says, Abram, you'll never guess what's happened. The Mesopotamian kings have come down. They've destroyed everyone. They've taken everything, all five kingdoms worth of, of it all. And they've taken it north, including Lot, your nephew, including his family and his flocks and his tents. All of it have been taken away. And so what Abram does is he rallies together 318 of his military trained men and he pursues the kings. And he routes them in a cunning plan. In the middle of the night, this, family, this, um, this army is divided and they attack the Mesopotamian kings and they win. And God gives Abram the victory and he takes all of the spoils that the kings had taken north and he brings them back south down to the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And we pick up the story there in chapter 14, verse 17. As Abram returns victorious, this is what happens. Chapter 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomor, or however you pronounce that, let's just call him Cheddar. After his return from the defeat of Ketoleomar, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread 
or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, "Mm, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and their share of what the men who went and the and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna, Eshol, and Mamre take their share. You see this contrast of two kings and how they respond to Abram in this moment. Melchizedek, king of Salem, whoever that is, just so you know. All of your GC leaders are such wonderful leaders. They're so knowledgeable in their Bible. You can ask them that question this week in GC. Who is Melchizedek? And they will tell you because, hey, we we love our leaders. But that's that's a hospital pass, that one. I've got no idea who Melchizedek is, and I didn't do any reading on that. I'm sorry. GC leaders, you can read this week and figure that out. But this these two kings come and one gives, and one says, Give me. One gives and blesses Abram and one says, give me. See, here's the deal. Abram, because he had won the victory, by rights, everything, every fortune of that lot and bounty that had been taken was his because he won the victory. And here the king of Sodom arrogantly, proudly says, give me. Oh, you can keep the stuff. Give me the people. Abram says, you know what? It doesn't work like that. He refuses to bow to the temptation of unjust gain. You can imagine the temptation there. Here is the bounty and loot of five kingdoms. Abraham was already rich at this point, but he's got to be thinking, maybe this is the way that God's going to bless me. Maybe all of this becomes mine now. That's got to be a tempting moment there. But he says, no, it doesn't work like that. I've lifted my hand to the Lord and I've promised him that I will not take even a piece of cotton from someone's jumper, from someone's skivvy and sloppy joe. He will not take anything because he does not want any glory to go to the king of Sodom who can say, ah, you see, I was the one who blessed Abraham. I was the one who made him rich. Here, Abram clings to the promises of God that says, I will do it, Abram. This is not about you. This is not about you manipulating and being cunning and deceptive. I will provide. I will fulfill these promises. Kind of reminds me of that moment of Jesus as he's tempted by the enemy, 40 days in the desert, fasting, no bread, no water. And the enemy comes to him. And it says there that he takes Jesus up and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he says, if you would just compromise, if you would just worship me, then all of this will be yours. It's a shortcut to the promises of God. What does Jesus do? He responds by faith. He responds by faith. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God only. That's what Abram does here. He responds by faith. Not by what he can see. He, he sees in front of him riches of five kingdoms. And he says, you know what? That's a compromise. It's cheap gain. I am not going to line my pockets on the wealth of a wicked nation like Sodom. 
I'm going to place my trust in the promises of God. And so here are these two tests that come to test his faith. The first is a test of a choice between family and flocks and fortune. The second is a test of whether or not he will line his pockets with cheap, unrighteous gain. And Abram, despite what his eyes see, chooses to cling to the promises of God by faith. And he walks by faith. But what about us? Sydney, 2017. Do you know that we live in the second most expensive city in the world for real estate? Second only to Hong Kong. Do you know that we have an average household worth in Australia of $810,000 and an average household income a year of $110,000. We live in a wealthy city. In fact, the United Nations report on Human Development Index in 2015 ranked Australia as second best in the world for quality of life. Second best in the world. We have the longest life expectancy in Australia. We have the longest length of schooling. That's not a comment on the quality of schools, but we do it for a long time. We, and we've got amazing teachers. Our teachers are great. We have one of the highest average incomes in the world. If you live in Sydney in 2017, you face the test of abundance every day. As you put on the suit, go to the office, as you put the high-vis jacket on and go to the job site, as you study for your future career, as you do something creative that makes you lots of money, or probably not, <laughs> you do that with the test of abundance. Look, even, even if you're on the dole living in Hauso, you're still in the top 5% of the world by virtue of the fact that you've got multiple running taps and a toilet in your house. If you live in Sydney in 2017, you face the test of abundance. The question is, where will we place our trust? Will we look around and see the well-watered economy of New South Wales? Will we pursue security outside of the promises of God? Will we dance with compromise near Sodom? Will we let our eyes, our sight, dictate our direction? Or will we be governed by faith? Will we walk by faith? Will we trust the promises of God? Now you might think, well, it's all well and good for Abram because he had all those promises. Like God promised he would make him famous. Does that mean he'll make me famous? No, he might, but... No, he doesn't promise you that. He promises Abram blessing and nation and land and family. But what does God promise me? What does God promise you? This is what God promises you. You ready? Matthew 6, 25. This is God's promise to you and it's mind-blowing. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not, the life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan, his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But get this. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today are alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What designer clothing will I wear? For the Gentiles seek all of these things, and your heavenly Father, get this, he knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Here is God's promise to you. His promise is this. You are more valuable to him than a flower and a bird. And he provides for them. The flowers are adorned in splendor. And you are more valuable. The birds are provided for and you are much more valuable. That's God's promise to you. That you are valuable to him and he will provide. He will provide. He knows you need food. He knows you need clothes. In fact, God knows the difference between a want and a need. We're very quick to convince ourselves that our wants are actually needs, aren't we? I, I need that. I, I definitely need that thing. God knows what you need. He knows it. And he promises I will provide. I've got you. I've got you. Not that he's going to spare you from hardship. Not that he's going to spare you from suffering. But even in that, I've got you. I will provide. As I was thinking on this this week, I was reminded of two stories that profoundly illustrate what this looks like. First is a family that I know who, um, whose kids came through our youth ministry. And many years ago, they decided that they were going to buy a pizza business in the western suburbs of Sydney. Before they bought the business, they did all of the background research into whether or not the company was profitable. It turned out the company was. It was turning a profit. They loved hospitality. They loved pizza. And so they bought this business. And not soon after they bought it, they realized that their figures weren't matching up to what the books said. And they realized that the previous owners had dodged the books a bit and had been paying their staff under the table, reducing their overheads, but doing so illegally. And so they were faced with a choice. Do they sell a business that's not profitable or do they attempt to work hard to try and make this business profitable? Or do they lie, deceive, and break the law? Here is a family who loved Jesus who wanted to cling to the promises of God, and so they did. They ran their business. They paid their staff well. They paid taxes. And their business went under. 
They went bankrupt. They lost their house. They lost everything. But even in that, God's promise of provision was still true. They didn't go without food. They didn't go without clothing. They didn't go without housing, even though they lost it. Now they're back on their feet today. They're running other businesses. They've got a house again. Their kids all went through uni. They've all grown up. They're okay. But they chose to live by faith and not by sight. Or it reminds me of another story of my cousin and her husband who moved from Johannesburg to Mauritius to pursue a massive lifestyle change. And not long before the move, my cousin's husband had become a Christian. And he'd been very high up in a transport company, very wealthy, very savvy businessman. And he decided when they moved to Mauritius, he was highly entrepreneurial, who was going to start a business of his own. And so he did all this research and he discovered that on Mauritius, there are a lot of hotels, five-star hotels, lots of them. Tourism is huge. And a lot of them were paying heaps of money doing hot dishwashing. And you had to get the temperatures of, the, of these dishwashers really high in order to clean the plates and the cutlery that went through them. And he discovered this product called ozone. I don't even know how you work with ozone. But what it meant was that these companies could significantly reduce the temperature at which they washed their dishes and save a lot of money. So he knew he had a stellar product. But the problem is Mauritius. If you're an outsider, you can't really do business without being a little bit underhanded. A couple of bribes, a couple of lies, a bit of deception, and then you can do business. But Shane, in his newfound faith, chose to cling to the promises of God and operate his business on the principles of faith, not on the principles of this world, not on the principles of the paradise island of Mauritius. He got a few customers, and because his product was so damn good, as soon as everyone else found out, they were willing to do business with him without the lies and without the bribes. Two stories. Completely different outcomes. But both families made a choice to walk by faith. To walk by faith and not by sight. There is no way you can account for that type of behavior if you do not cling to a promise that says, I will provide for you, I've got you. How else do you account for that? It's ludicrous if there is no God. It's ludicrous if there is no promise of provision. It's ludicrous if there is not a kingdom, heaven that awaits for us. That is living a radical life that demands some form of explanation. What is it that drives these people to act so differently to everyone else around them? There is nothing more countercultural and radical than costly obedience to Jesus. There is nothing more countercultural and radical than generosity of God's people. And we will only endure the test of abundance here in Sydney, if we can cling to the promise of God, I've got you, I will provide. Walking by faith means knowing that God knows what my needs are, that he is my good father, and that he will provide. 
there are countless stories, I'm sure, of people who've lived that out, of God's provision for them as they stepped out in faith. I'm reminded of that beautiful quote from the famous Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who says, when we get the gospel, when we get that we are pilgrims journeying on this earth, when we get that, Every single day, I am pitching my tent a day's journey closer to home. When we get that, then we can say this. I am not the possessor of these things. I merely have them on lease. They do not really belong to me. I do not cling to these things. They do not become the center of my life and existence. I do not live for them or dwell upon them constantly in my mind. They do not absorb my life On the contrary, I hold them loosely. I am in a state of blessed detachment from them. Isn't that where Abraham was? In a state of blessed detachment. That he can freely say, I cling to the promises of God. I know what he said, so Lot, you choose. Because I'm walking by faith and not by sight. Oh, that we would be pilgrims like Abram who wander and journey and travel with a sense of blessed detachment in our city. That we would cling not to the blessing, but the blesser, the one who gives that blessing. Well, think of it this way. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. This is what it looks like to walk by faith. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The things that are seen will fade The things that are unseen will last. The things that are seen can be stolen. The things that are unseen cannot. They are kept in heaven for you. And so we're called to walk by faith, seeing with the eyes of faith as Abram did. But more than that, God has promised you more than that. Because in the gospel, that is the good news story of God saving the world for himself. In the gospel, God makes the biggest promise of all. For those of you who love Jesus and who have put your faith in him, this is what God promises you. In 1 John 2 verse 25, it says this. And this is the promise that God has made to us. Eternal life. That's the promise that God has made. Eternal life. God's present promise is for your future provision that he's got you. That it doesn't rest on your attempts to justify yourself that by Jesus, he's got you. And what you need more than anything else is life. And that life comes as a free gift by the grace of God. You know, there are many here today who are walking by sight and not by faith, focusing on what you can see, grasping for the tangible, chasing after the green pastures of Sodom. 
But I want to tell you today that God has something better for you. That his promises are for you. And you can't see them and you can't touch them, but you sure can experience them and get a foretaste of them. These promises are received by faith. The promise that Jesus gives us is that every person who believes has eternal life. Every person who believes has eternal life. That word belief is faith. Trusting that what Jesus has done for me secures my future. And I'm going to cling to that promise that God will get me home. That we would believe. That we would truly believe. I don't just mean believe intellectually in your head. I mean believe with the eyes of faith that cling to that promise. That we would walk by faith every day, trusting that Jesus' promises are true. That if you believe, you have eternal life. That your sins are forgiven. That the Father has declared over you, justified. That He has given you His Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. That He has stored up treasure for you that no one can take away. Nothing can corrode. That you will sit on the Father's lap and He will wipe every tear from your eye. That you are accepted. That the Father approves of you. All because of what Jesus has done and those promises are received by faith. And so I invite you now to lift your eyes and see what God has in store for those of you who put your faith and trust in Jesus and to cling to those promises and walk by faith every day. We're going to respond to this God in a number of ways. The first is we're going to respond in worship as we sing. And the words that we sing are a declaration of our belief, a declaration of our faith. And so I invite you to sing them with all of your heart. We're going to respond by reminding ourselves of the faithfulness of our God towards us. In these symbols, the bread, the grape juice, reminders that Jesus broke his body and his blood was shed for our forgiveness, for our life, for our eternal life, for our blessing. And so for those of you who love Jesus, this meal is a reminder for you. And we're going to respond in prayer. Maybe you're in the midst of a test of abundance and you sense yourself walking by sight, head to the back and ask the prayer team that God would give you the faith that you need to cling to his promises. Maybe this morning you realize that faith has never been a category for you, that you have never believed in Jesus. You want eternal life. Head to the back. Our prayer team would love to pray for you and lead you in a prayer of faith, of receiving the promises of Jesus for yourself. And then let's go and walk as we leave this building on Monday morning, on Tuesday morning. Walk by faith. Let me pray. God, we thank you 
We thank you, God, that even though we cannot see these promises realized, that even though we cannot see your kingdom, we know, God, that it's real. We know that your promises are sure because there is not a single promise that you have made that you have not kept. And so, God, as we walk through the test of abundance, would you help us to walk by faith? And God, as we walk every day, would you help us to walk by faith in the finished work of Jesus? Not on our strength. Lift our eyes, Lord. Strengthen us by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.